please join me as we read the prayer for elimination together. God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in holy scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our reading this morning is from Jonah 3. This is what the Holy Scripture says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man, man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So ends the reading of God's word. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Tay. Good morning. My name is Jason. I'm pastor here at King's Church. We're glad you're with us this morning. Politically correct, or PC for short, is a popular phrase used to describe people who are very concerned Uh, with the conversation taking place in our cultural uh, diversity, uh, multiculturalism. And uh, critics of political correctness will often say that that an overemphasis and concern in how we talk to one another uh, can come at the expense of rigorous education and free thinking. When we hear of political correctness, we often think of a hyper- sensitivity and concern for offending people, saying something uh, culturally insensitive, so much so that at times it can feel like we all have to wear muzzles uh, and avoid saying anything that we might think or feel. Uh, President Trump often boasts uh, about not being politically correct, saying whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and many people who support Trump uh, like that about him. But it's not just our president who uh, rejects the PC standards of discourse. Years ago, Bill Maher is a comedian. He he hosted a TV show. It was titled Politically Incorrect, where he regularly criticized politicians, higher education, the media for being cultural cowards. And even a few days ago, the le- comedy legend Mel Brooks was uh, bemoaning the current cultural climate 
of political correctness because of its impact on comedians. This is what he said. He said, I think that people enjoy, that people love the comics that break the rules. That's what I think. I think it's only a sliver that really love political correctness. Everybody else likes the truth, which is different. Notice Mel's assumption. A political correctness and truth don't go together. Because if not offending someone is your ultimate value, you'll avoid or ignore the truth. Now, I want to argue that Jonah chapter 3 is one of the more politically incorrect chapters in the Bible. A Jewish prophet travels to a foreign city, Nineveh, and condemns it, proclaiming God's judgment over it. Now, it's not politically correct to judge and condemn another culture. Jonah did not take a diversity training class. He is a Hebrew. He should stick to his own people, his own culture. What gives him the right to go to Nineveh and pronounce judgment? Well, the book of Jonah It really is full of surprises, Uh, events that are difficult to believe. We can go to to the very beginning of Jonah chapter 1. There we see the prophet of God disobeys God. From the very beginning, God calls Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah goes the opposite direction. Uh, Jonah gets on a ship with pagan sailors. The the next surprising thing we see in the book is these pagan sailors are more spiritually aware and responsive than Jonah. And then the next surprise that we see is that Jonah is hurled into the sea and he's swallowed by a great fish. We also see a surprising event that Jonah survives in the belly of that fish for three days. And not only that, we see this great fish spits Jonah out on dry land, one surprise after the other. And then we come to chapter 3, and I would say another surprise happens at the beginning of chapter 3, where God calls Jonah a second time. He doesn't give up on Jonah. Why is God so stubborn when it comes to this prophet? Why doesn't he find someone else who will obey? God's persistent. God uses Jonah a second time. We're told at the very beginning of the chapter, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, what appears to be happening is this is a do-over. If you remember at the very beginning of the book, in Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2, it's almost word for word the same announcement here, God telling Jonah to go. And even in the Hebrew uh, manuscript, there's, there's a signaled pause here between chapter 2 and chapter 3, where it's intended to be a pause because you're supposed to stop and say, okay, it seems that we're starting over, a new beginning, here between God and his prophet. 
Now, what's not so surprising is that Jonah obeys this time. Considering what Jonah has been through, it's not surprising that he responds this time. He realizes he's not going to get out of this. And so he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh was the enemy to the Jewish people. They were a growing threat to Israel. Within 60 years of Jonah's life, Assyria was going to conquer or would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrians were known for their brutality. They were a conquering nation, and they did so without remorse. So Jonah goes, he responds, knowing his life is certainly at risk. And yet he goes, and we're told in verse 3, goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And we're told of how important and how large Nineveh was. took three days to journey through the city. And Jonah goes... And after a day's journey, he calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, what could be, I think, argued the most surprising event in the entire book of Jonah is at verse 5. Did you notice? In verse 5, it tells us, the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. Now, what's interesting, if you know the Hebrew, I don't know if you caught the difference in how God is referred in verse 5 versus, for example, verse 3. In verse 3, we're told that Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In the Hebrew, Lord is a different Hebrew word that refers to Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is introduced to us with Moses in the burning bush. God introduces himself with that covenant name to the Jewish people, to Israel. Yahweh, Israel's God. But here in verse 5, when referring to Nineveh and the Assyrians, we see that they believed Elohim. They believed God, which refers more to God as creator. God, uh, kind of a sense of God over all, not just Israel. And so these polytheists, these Assyrians, these Ninevites who were, were believers in lots of gods quickly believe in the God that Jonah proclaims to them. Now, what did they believe? Now, that's what I want to just go briefly with you through. Three things. And the first is this, that the people of Nineveh believed God's judgment was near God's judgment was near. We're told Jonah pronounced this news that yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There was this sense of urgency. 40 days. And the city would be destroyed. Now, it's not only fascinating that the Ninevites believed God, but how quickly and readily they believed it, took, it would take Jonah thir- uh, three days to travel throughout the city and pronounce God's judgment on Nineveh. But we're told that Jonah got one day into the journey and they believed. They were ready. They were quick to respond. And this is the challenge for us today as modern people, is to believe that God's judgment is near. Do we believe God's judgment is near. The people of Nineveh responded, and I wonder, will you? Will you respond? 
Do you have a sense of urgency? Do you have a sense that 40 days, like 40 years, like 400 years to God is like the blink of an eye? And before we know it, you and I could be facing God's judgment. Do you have a sense that it's near? Now, you might be of the mindset, well, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is a God of judgment. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is a person of love. Jesus is a person of compassion. But can I just remind you that Jesus spoke of judgment as well? Debbie referenced in her prayer for Beacon, uh, for him, uh, she referenced this passage in Matthew 25, and she talks about Jesus' teaching that those who feed the poor would be welcomed into God's family. But Jesus also in that passage said this, to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then later on in the passage, he said, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, can I convince you this morning that Jesus, just as Jonah, preached a message of judgment. Jesus preached judgment just like Jonah. Jesus had a sense of urgency that all of us should have. That God's judgment is near Now, that is uncomfortable for 21st century evangelicals even, I think, at times. We can can be uncomfortable with this Jesus. Uh, One writer uh, described our perception of Jesus as evangelicals today this way, that their music, trinkets, DVDs, and movies market a Jesus who will hold you tight, model generosity, and tell you how to vote. We prefer that kind of Jesus, but when we take the gospel seriously, we see this Jesus who spoke of judgment and took it seriously. And we need to have a sense of urgency when it comes to seeing that God's judgment is near for us today, not just the Ninevites. But the second thing we see in this story is that the people of Nineveh believed God, and that means they believed God's judgment was valid. God's judgment was valid. We're told in verse 5 that they believed God, they called for a fast, they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, it's an interesting question to ask. Why did the Ninevites respond so quickly? And scholars are very intrigued by that question. Some talk about the fact uh, that For example, there's medieval illustrations of Jonah (coughs) that his flesh would have been made so ghastly by the the fish's gastric juices that the Ninevites would have seen this prophet coming at them almost like this ghostly zombie. Uh, And they would have been freaked out and they would have believed anything that Jonah said. Or perhaps the Ninevites were so stunned by his boldness It's so gutsy for him to come to Nineveh, of all places, and proclaim judgment. But scholars also look at the historical context of this story. Now, we don't know exactly who the king of Nineveh was, 
the Assyrian king. He's not named in this story, but we do have a sense of when Jonah was alive in the 8th century. And it's believed that Ashurdan III, who was an Assyrian king in the middle of the 8th century BC, might have been this king that responded so quickly to Jonah's message. Now, what's interesting when you learn about Assyrian history and look at their um, literature, that they had what's called omen texts that would have described four situations that a king would have responded in this way. One would be invasion by a foreign uh, enemy. Uh, Two, a total solar eclipse. Three, famine, uh, along with some sort of uh, epidemic. And four, a severe flood, some, some sort of natural disaster. Now, when we look at Ashurdan III, he actually was one of the weaker kings of Assyria. And in fact, there, were, uh, there was pressure and um, they were dealing with issues with a, f- a foreign nation that was, uh, mil- they were having military conflict with. We also know that there was a solar eclipse during his reign, that there, uh, they were struggling with some famine. All of these issues we see were happening at this point in time in Assyria. And so scholars point to that and say, it is not unusual at all that an Assyrian king would hear this proclamation of judgment and in light of his current uh, situation would have responded quickly to a prophet like Jonah, believing that God's disfavor was on him and he needed to do something about it. He believed God's judgment was valid. Now, this is a traditional view, isn't it? Now, some might say, well, that's an ancient view, but I think even among Christians today and some, um, some people outside the Christian church, they have a traditional view, and, and you may not have a problem believing God's judgment is valid. But many, many people today... Many modern people really struggle, really struggle with this idea of God. This idea that there's a God of judgment, that there's a God of wrath, that there's a God who could be angry at us. But notice the king. Notice the king's response in verses 8 and 9. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that they, we might not perish. Who knows? The king did not assume God's favor. Unlike many modern people today who do. The king had a very different perception and expectation on the divine. Which is different than how many people feel today. The Assyrian mentality was God had a right to be angry. It wasn't unjust. Uh, And if he's God, he would have authority over them. And that's very difficult for our modern minds to consider. Uh, We believe today we've evolved past such thinking. Uh, But they didn't believe God was unjust to judge them. And the Syrian king had a worldview that accepted God's position of authority over him. Now, the current um, flavor of of evangelical thought today 
in this regard is becoming clearer and clearer as we uh, go. In these modern days, people are very uncomfortable with this idea of, of God's judgment in hell. Uh, Tim Keller, who is um, a well-known pastor in New York, uh, just recently posted a tweet And this is what his tweet said. Unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much Jesus loves you. Now, that's very controversial today, unfortunately, in the church. And and there's many in the church who are beginning to actually denounce a view of hell and and argue against that. And one of the responses uh, to Keller's tweet was this. My God is not a monster. Sorry that yours is is. And I think that communicates well the perception of many people today when it comes to this idea of God as judge, God as angry, God as wrathful. Um, But let me say this, you can disagree with God as judge, but do you have a good reason? Because not liking it is not a good reason. Just because you don't like it is not a good reason. And I would like to have that conversation with you and you know, have a good conversation discussion and really think about why do you believe what you believe? Where's the good evidence? Because you can't go to the Bible and hold that position if you're going to take all the Bible, even the passages you're uncomfortable with, even passages like Jonah chapter 3. Now, you need to know, especially if you're visiting with us, People in our church have said through the years, they wish I was more bold. (laughs) See, there's laughter because you guys know if you've been with us for any amount of time, I hate doing this (laughs) because I want people to like me. And I don't like talking about God's judgment. I prefer to present God is love, God loves you, and let's just be happy and let's not talk about bad stuff. I can be tempted to fall into that trap. And that's why I wonder if I would have struggled to be a doctor because I would not have wanted, wanted to, give, to give people bad news about their health or a teacher and, and grade people and tell them they failed a class. Uh, and sometimes as a parent, I'm not very good at being consistent with consequences. Uh, I waffle, I waver on those things, and I'm just being honest with you. But th- here's, here's what I want you guys to consider, is we can't be closed off to the truth simply because we don't like what we hear. Now, people will say, how can God be loving and judge? How can God be loving and condemn? How can God be loving and destroy? Well, can a l- loving doctor tell a patient, he has a terminal illness? Can a loving professor tell his student she's failing the class? Can a loving parent tell her child she's grounded for a week? E.H. Gifford puts it well, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. And see, this is a way for us to consider how God's judgment actually shows us his love even more profoundly. God's judgment flows out of his love. 
He's like that father that loves his son. He sees in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor, and he will not stand for it. He will not stand for it. You know, I struggle. One of the things Olivia and I have been working on in therapy is my willingness to believe my wife. And when she comes to me and tells me things that I need to hear about my own selfishness or my own stubbornness, I don't want to hear it. You know, I could have the attitude, (laughs) you know, I don't like that. And my wife would never say that. And I'm not going to believe the things that you're telling me. But no, I need to be confronted with the truth. I need to hear the things that I don't want to hear because they're true. And here we have a passage that's confronting us with truth, whether we want to hear it or not. Becky Pippert says it well in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And so we see the people of Nineveh believed God's judgment was valid, and and I hope today you will as well. And see, it is not in conflict with his love. And that's what we see in this last point, that the people of Nineveh believed God's judgment was death, ultimately leads to death. That's what the king is talking about when he says that maybe God will relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. Jonah was pronouncing destruction on the city. It's a similar language to Sodom and Gomorrah uh, from Genesis. And notice how they respond. How does the king respond? With repentance. They throw themselves on God's mercy. We're told that the king took off his, his kingly robes. He would have had fine clothes. He took them off and put sackcloth and ashes on. And I, I think I have a, an image you know, kind of a drawing of what that might have looked like. Can you imagine a king taking off his crown, taking off his gold, his jewelry, putting on this sackcloth, and what it symbolizes is brokenness. It symbolizes dependency. It symbolizes repentance. It symbolizes a person who's stopped trying to be a good person and depend on their own moral righteousness and instead throw themselves on the mercy of God because they realize they can't do it. They're not good enough. And this is where we see the love of God comes through clearly is he forgives. He's the forgiving God. And we know that through Jesus on the cross. We know that through the good news of the gospel. That faith and repentance leads not to death but to life. God's judgment leads to death. But friends, the good news is that Jesus took that judgment on the cross. And that good news is true for you. If you would give your life to him. And trust that God's righteous judgment is satisfied in Christ. And that you can find life in Him. One author put it this way, that, you know, in referencing uh, Jonah in the belly of the whale, he said that (coughs) God will put a man in a fish where he doesn't belong to show us how dumb we look in our sinful condition. But what is weirder or more outlandish than a fish swallowing a man, a God hanging on a cross, 
a man rising from the dead. God trumps our idiocy with his foolishness and wins ten times out of ten. You see, this is the good news of the story is this God of judgment is ultimately seen in his love through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And at the cross is the one place where the judgment of God and the love of God come together. And we have opportunity to have life in him. And so friends, here this morning, God's judgment is near. God's judgment is valid. God's judgment is death. But God's judgment was satisfied through Christ and is available to you if you would only believe. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, this morning, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I ask that we would believe the good news. That we would believe that in Christ we have life. That in Christ we have no reason to fear condemnation. That in Christ we have access to life in all its fullness. And I pray that as we take the bread and the cup, as we're reminded of your sacrifice for us, that our hearts would not stay in that place of sadness or sorrow, but you would lead us to joy. You would lead us to celebration. You would let us see a glimpse of our future destiny with you. In this meal, Jesus, show us life that you offer us. And I pray that we would respond, and I pray that we would believe. Believe your promises. Believe in your goodness. Believe in your faithfulness, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.